Scripture this morning is taken from 1 Peter 3, verses 13 through 17. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer what is doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. This is the word of the Lord. You may have a seat. I didn't, intru- I didn't introduce myself earlier. I'm Pastor Joey, and I wanted to share... Hi, thank you. Uh, I know I've told some of you I grew up in kind of a small town, central Iowa, rural Iowa, you could call it, about 2,000 people or so. It's up to 2,500 now. It's really taken off. And uh, um, kind of a conservative community. Well, I was in high school, and learning what it meant for the first time to try to live out my faith. What did it look like to live Christianly in the world around us, in the world around me? And I, uh, I shared a little bit last week how the, uh, the community that I was in, the church that I was part of, um, stressed a, a real stark difference, maybe a, a hard difference from the world around us. We were called, we felt, to withdraw from society as much as we could. I mean, you still had to buy gas and stuff like that. But as much as you could, kind of withdraw from society and highlight our differences through superior moral actions. Uh, we called it letting your light shine and making sure people saw it. I, I worked as a daycare provider uh, after school for a couple hours every day at the, the daycare in town. I was the twos and then the toddlers. Toddlers are the best. They have the best toys. But uh, I worked with the toddlers, and I forget all the details of how this particular thing I'm about to tell you about came around, but I remember being called into the director's office. Uh, now, she and I had a pretty good relationship, so I didn't think too much of it. She's friends with my mom, so she couldn't be too mean to me, or I'd, I'd complain to my mother. But uh, she called me into her office and said hey, I got to talk to you about something. I had a couple of parents complain uh, that when, when they come to pick up their kids at 5.30, 6 o'clock, uh, you're playing Christian music. I was like, well, yeah, of course I am. I'm letting my light shine. She said, well, these parents, uh, they are paying us to watch their kids, not proselytize them. They're a little offended by the music. I mean, just, let's just not. And I walked out of her office feeling so good. Man, I'm being persecuted for my faith. This is exactly what Jesus said would happen. Exactly. Went right back in there and turned the music right back on again. She had to call me again, in again and be like, no, look, I'm serious. Like, it's, this is not appropriate. It's not appropriate for a professional environment, for the workplace. Professional, I know we're dealing with dirty diapers and boogers, but come on. Just don't play, don't play the music. And second time, third time, she had to tell me. I, persecution is one word for it. Uh, in reality, I was just being a jerk, which I think is fairly obvious. Uh, that parents are paying money not to have me try to convert their kids underneath their noses and without telling them. I was not being the word we've kind of adopted, winsome. 
But if you remember, our, our church's vision is to equip informed and winsome ambassadors for Jesus Christ in a secular culture. Informed, winsome ambassadors. Now, informed ambassadors is not that hard. Winsome is where the rubber really meets the road. So we're taking a couple of weeks to dig into this. What does it mean to be winsome? We talked about it last week, just kicking it off, and we're going to spend the next couple of weeks saying, okay, what does it mean to be winsome? And how do we do it in this world? How do we do it especially in this kind of charged social media world? The only thing that saved me when I was in high school is that Facebook, Facebook didn't exist or many, many more people would have been exposed to my jerkiness. So how, how are we winsome in this world today with all the various communications options we have and all the different ways we can interact with people? What does it mean to be winsome? Well, we started this winsome part of our discussion, our posture towards the world last week by looking at Jeremiah 29. Uh, if you were here last week, you recall Jeremiah chapter 29 is kind of a famous letter that Jeremiah wrote to exiles in Babylon in which he tells them, you're going to be here for a while. Don't just huddle up and protect yourselves, but move out into the city. God has called you there, so move there. You've got a vocation. Pray for its peace. Pray for its flourishing work on its behalf. And he told them a story, a story that gave them security in their identity as people of God so that they could move out into the world around them and still maintain their difference as exiles as a minority group in a majority culture. There's some parallels to us today uh, because any minority group in a majority culture or in a pluralistic culture has to figure out as a group how it's going to relate to the world around it. Right? Individuals within the group may be uh, at different places sort of on the scale of accommodation to stark difference and, and the volume of their responses and all that, but the, the, the group has to decide together, do we have a, a coherent and a cohesive vision for how we interact with the world around us, for how we maintain our identity in the broader culture? And since we, as a church, as Faith Church, have committed together to this idea of winsomeness, posturing ourselves to the world around us in a way that highlights the attractiveness of the gospel, well, we have to learn as a group and apply as individuals how we go about the business of being winsome. What does it look like? What does winsomeness look like? What kind of a difference should we live out, should we exhibit? That's why we're turning to 1 Peter chapter 3. Now, you may recall, if you have a really good memory, we spent some time in 1 Peter back in January near the beginning of this discipleship series. Pastor Jeff did a great job back then of walking us through parts of chapter 1 and chapter 2, highlighting for us uh, language that Peter uses around exiles, sojourners, pilgrims, showing us how Peter takes the ideas that, that come up in Jeremiah 29 and he, he brings them into the church and gives us new application for the church today. Now, because Peter was writing to a group of Christians, to different churches spread throughout Asia Minor, who were living within cultures that were largely antagonistic to their presence. Uh, way back in chapter 1, verse 1, he, he writes the letter to the elect exiles of the dispersion. Exiles who've been scattered throughout the area we call Turkey now. And then again in chapter 2, verse 11, Peter assumes the Christians he's talking to are, are living as sojourners and exiles. That status is their motivation for then what he commands them to do after that. Pastor Jeff explained it's this idea of being a resident alien. Not a tourist, but also not a citizen. Not 
feeling alien, but also not feeling at home, living in this sort of difficult, fuzzy middle. Christians are, are different because they've been born into a new kingdom, a new family, a new culture. Uh, they're unique. As Pastor Jeff said, Christians in this world are not really visiting, but they're not really at home either. They're weird. That's a direct quote. He said that. Christians are weird. Personal experience, he says, probably from the church staff. As uh, Flannery Connor put it, you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you odd. Christians are weird. Now, typically, you know, when we think about exiles in, in our modern context today, we tend to think of exiles in one of three different ways. Either we think of exiles as those who are, are forcibly moved through war, poverty, some other thing. That they're moved out of their home culture into another one uh, that is not at all like theirs or is in some way significantly different from theirs. You could think of refugees moving across Asia Minor towards Europe. Uh, or we might think of uh, exiles as people who are kind of leaving behind the world behind them in search of new opportunities and sort of proactively going towards a place, but not from a position of weakness, from a position of power, colonizers, in other words. Or you may think of exiles as someone who's been forcibly removed from their land, resettled in a new place, and, and whose national identity is in the process of being sort of subsumed underneath their conquering culture in order to destroy that subculture's uh, own identity. These are different ways we think about exiles. And in each of those cases, these, these exiles have moved from one culture into another one. They've come from the outside. Like first-generation immigrants, they may come into the outside and sort of set up their own little haven that resembles the old world, like a, a Chinatown, something like that. Maintain the language, the customs, just in this new place. Or if, again, if they're coming from a position of power, like colonizers, they'll come in and sort of try to reshape not just their area, but the whole thing, like the old world, and call it the new world, and give it names like New York, New Jersey, New England. Make it like the old one. Or we may move in and kind of like second-generation immigrants come in and sort of reject the culture we came from in favor of accommodation to or identification with the culture we're now in. So we reject one in favor of taking on the other. But when we refer to Christians as exiles, there's a twist to it that, that makes it a little more complicated. Christians are not outsiders who seek to become insiders, nor are Christians outsiders who are attempting to strenuously maintain their position of outsider. The theologian Miroslav Volf explains it like this. He says, Christians are the insiders who have diverted from their culture by being born again. They are by, de they are by definition those who are not what they used to be, those who do not live like they used to live. He says, Christian difference, therefore, is not an insertion of something new into the old. It's a bursting out of the new precisely within the proper space of the old. Do you see the difference? Those other three ways of looking at exiles, they come from the outside in and then seek to figure out what their place is. Christian exiles are different. We Christians, those who have been born again into a living hope, to use the language Peter uses, we have been born from within, within the space of the old. We are new, existing within the sphere of the old. Not outside, coming inside, but new from within the old. 
And that, that newness within the space of the oldness implies a difference. There has to be a difference. Otherwise, we'd have no mission. There'd be no one to reach if we weren't different from anyone. I, hopefully, that, that's self-evident. But it, it implies a, a difference, but not the kind of difference that allows us, like, as a colonizer to come in and judge, oh, I'll keep this, I'll keep that, I'm going to reject all of that. But the kind of difference that says, I've, I've grown up with all of this. What do I need to adopt? What do I need to reject? What do I need to modify? How do I... How do I live this new citizenship, this new kingdom I'm part of within the space of the old? Which is really the, the question we're tackling this morning. What, what is this difference? How do we live it out? We're going to be different. The, the language of exiles and sojourners should just make us realize, yeah, we're different. We're odd. We're weird now. But what kind of a weird are we going to be? What kind of a difference should we be? There's lots of different ways to be different, lots of different, lots of adjectives you could put in front of the word difference to describe us. We could be hard. We could be sharp. We could be, now I'm trying to come up with adjectives, pliable. That's a weird one. We could be pushovers. We could be militaristic. I'd like to suggest a word that we consider to define our difference, and it's a word we're going to explore from 1 Peter 3, chapter, verses 13 through 17. It's the word soft. Now, if you haven't already turned to 1 Peter 3, go ahead, if, if, grab there, get, go there in your Bible or grab one of the Bibles underneath the seat in front of you. It's on page 1205 of, of that one if you want to follow along. Uh, 1 Peter 3, 13 through 17, I think, highlights this concept of a difference that is not hard, is not sharp, but is soft. I didn't say weak, but soft. Let's, let's take a look at verses 13 through 17. This paragraph comes in the context of Peter giving some sort of theoretical, sort of practical thoughts uh, for these sort of persecuted small church groups to think about as they're suffering unjustly. He begins in verse 13 with a rhetorical question. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? In other words, who's going to, who in their right mind is going to punish you if you are passionately pursuing what is good? Not just good for yourself, but what is objectively good, good for all, good for the city to which God has called you in your exile. Who's going to punish you if you're doing and we could just skim up a couple of verses, the things Peter commands them. Unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, a humble mind. Or go back farther up to chapter 2, conduct that is honorable. Who's going to punish you for doing that? Well, he asks the question and follows up with the next verse because it's happening. At least the potential is there, if not the actuality of persecution. Verse 14, he says, even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Even if you should, in other words, in some places, you will. And notice, he's not saying you will, you will suffer for righteousness' sake. You will suffer because you're part of a community that, uh, that preaches a certain message. He's saying you're going to be punished because you're doing things that are good, and yet the world around you doesn't think of as good. So when that happens, you'll be blessed. And have no fear of them nor be troubled. 
which are some gutsy words to write because Peter is not writing to somebody in trouble for playing Christian music in a daycare. He's writing to people who are suffering actual persecution. Uh, One uh, historian of the early church writes that the church at this time faced social disgust, political danger, the charge of treachery to the gods and to the state, the insinuation of horrible crimes, and calculated opposition from a combination of sources more powerful, perhaps, than at any time since. Essentially, what was happening is that all of the the practices, the rituals, the sort of regular habits and patterns of life that got commerce done, the marketplace, the temple, the favor of the gods, government, civil life, all of it was wrapped up in these sort of rituals of debauchery, ritualistic prostitution, adultery, Uh, Abortion through child exposure, circus entertainments, gladiatorial shows, murder for sports, wild beast fights. These were things Christians said, we can't, I know to to be part of the society, we have to participate in these things, but we can't participate in these things. We need to step back and do good in a different way. And the cultures around them said, how can you do that? You're going to call down the wrath of the gods on us. This is bad. And they're being punished for it. So it took guts, I think, for Peter to write. Now, who is there to harm you if you're zealous for doing good? Because the answer is pretty much everyone. It's all aligned against them as they're facing physical threat, financial destitution, restitution, financial destitution. Is that a word? Destitution? Yeah. Thank you, Jerry. Uh, They're facing physical threats, financial ruin. I feel like Elmer Fudd there. Uh, facing financial ruin, they're losing their jobs, they're losing their livelihood, they're losing their homes, they're, they're losing all these things because they have claimed Christ. I mean, this is actual, real persecution. He says, but if you, have, if you suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. Have no fear of them. Fear sounds like the only rational response, doesn't it? To be troubled, to be anxious, to be on guard, sounds like that's how you keep yourself safe. One of my favorite authors is Marilyn Robinson. She wrote in an essay a couple of years ago that America is a culture of fear, but fear is not a Christian habit of mind. America is a culture driven by fear, but fear is not a Christian habit of mind. And that comes through clearly here in 1 Peter 3, have no fear of them. I mean, I know they're killing you and taking all of your property and stealing your children and, and, and you're dying, starving in the street, but don't be afraid. Instead, in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Honor Christ the Lord as holy. Which I think to us sounds something like we would interpret, oh, make Jesus first in your life. And that's kind of true, but in a a context of of persecution like that, to honor Christ the Lord as holy, to set him up as the standard by which we judge our lives, our identity, our belonging, who we are, where where we belong, where we live, who loves us, what we're good at, how we interact with the world, is to do a whole lot more than do what we mean when we say, oh, make Jesus first in your life. You're being ostracized socially. It's okay. With Jesus, you have a new social structure. You're part of the church. You're being ruined financially. Well, the church will get together. We'll hold things in common together so that we can take care of people who are being persecuted. 
You're being told you're bringing down the wrath of the gods. Well, no, you're not. The wrath of God has already fallen on one, and that's Jesus. And it's because of his sacrifice that the wrath of God will not fall on you. To, in our hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy is to find only in Jesus our identity, our satisfaction, our security. It's, well, to update it for today's language, it's, it's not to honor our paycheck in our hearts as holy or honor our, our job position in our hearts as holy as that is the thing that gives me uh, identity meaning. It's, it's to not hold up as the foundation of our identity things like our families, whether or not they're doing well, walking with the Lord. It's not to hold up things like a resume or a CV or a report card or an acceptance letter into the master's program you wanted to get into or a sense that you're living your best life now. To honor Christ as holy in our hearts is to say, I am accepted by him. That is a foundation that is unshakable and unassailable. No one can destroy it. No one can, can knock it down. No one can knock it out from under me. No matter what they do, no matter how they persecute me, no matter how many times they tell us to stop doing what they're doing, they cannot destroy the foundation of our faith. That's what it means to honor Christ as holy in our hearts. And to do that then comes with another action that comes along with it. It's in verse, 14, uh, verse 15, in your hearts honor Christ the Lord is holy, always being prepared, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason, for the hope that is in you. Now there's, I counted, at least six sermons in that one verse. And I'm going to do my best to make sure you get to Bob Evans on time and not dig into it. So I'm going to... I'm going to take that and hold it for a later sermon series, maybe someday, about defense and apology and apologetics and reason and hope and being prepared and all of that. I just want to slide ahead to the last two words of verse 15 or the, last, or the first two words of verse 16, depending on your translation. Do it with gentleness and respect. When you give a defense, when you speak on behalf of Christ... When you live as a Christian in the world around, do it with gentleness, do it with respect, Peter says. Now keep in mind, as we're we're talking about this, he is talking to people who are being actually persecuted. And he says, when you respond and interact with your persecutors, do it with gentleness and respect. Or as chapter 2, verse 12 said, keep your conduct honorable. It's not just the people who are inquiring and really want to know about the hope that is in you. It's everyone. Gentleness, respect, keep your conduct honorable. Now, this gentleness, this respect, this is not a passive-aggressive, manipulative tactic to get what you want. I know some of us, myself included a little bit, grew up in homes where gentleness was a, was a, a strategy to get what you wanted, right? I mean, you don't have to, but if you loved me... Now, it was never that blatant. We were a lot better at it than that. You can be gentle and get what you want if you're also going to be manipulative, but First Peter doesn't give us that option. He doesn't say, be gentle because if you're gentle and wily, then you'll get what you need. And he says, be gentle and be respectful. Gentleness and respect are a fundamental part of the Christian orientation to the world around us. One theologian calls gentleness the open life stance of the strong, not the weak, 
the strong. Gentleness is the open life stance of the strong who feel no need to support their own uncertainty by aggression towards others. Which kind of just hits, doesn't it? People who are gentle are strong because they're not insecure. They're not so uncertain of themselves that they have to shout louder than other people in order to feel like maybe they're right. As I learned in a homiletics class once, a preaching class, like if your point's weak, man, pound the pulpit harder. We don't have to do that. Gentleness doesn't do that. Pound louder the weaker we think our arguments are. Gentleness is the stance of the strong who are confident in their convictions, more accurately confident in their God. Gentleness, respect, these are fundamental parts of how the Christian relates to the world around us. In fact, I might be going out on a limb here, but I don't think you can be winsome. And when I say you, I mean all of us. I mean myself included. I don't think it's possible to be winsome towards someone you fundamentally don't respect. It is impossible, impossible to be winsome towards someone whose fundamental humanity isn't even enough for you to respect them. We'll never be winsome if we can't respect the people that we're talking to who disagree with us. Alan Jacobs is a professor of humanities down at Baylor University. He wrote a book recently called How to Think, uh, which is not as dry as it sounds. It's actually pretty funny and a really good read. Uh, he writes about an attitude he calls the problem of the repugnant cultural other. The repugnant cultural other, it's the tendency to consider some class or type of individuals as so far out there that they're incomprehensible and their very existence is offensive. After first service, somebody came up and shook my, ha my hand and said, that idea, the repugnant cultural other, man, I get that. I can't stand liberals. And there's one at this church. <laughs> I said there's more than one. <laughs> Jacobs writes, everybody today seems to have a repugnant cultural other. And everyone's repugnant cultural other is on social media somewhere. Right? Yeah, we may be, we may be able to avoid listening to them, you know, mute them, but we can't avoid the realization that they're just two rooms over shouting very loudly. It's funny they think the same thing about us, but let's, let's not get into that. See, there's a version of this even shows up in Scripture in Luke 18. A, uh, a tax collector and a Pharisee are in the temple to pray, and the Pharisee stands by himself, and he says, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector over here. Jewish men were known at the time to pray, God, thank you that I am not a woman, a slave, or a Gentile. Sometimes afraid, I'm afraid the Christian church says, God, thank you. Thank you that I'm not gay, a minority, or a liberal. Man, who is our repugnant cultural other? I know I'm going out on a limb saying some of these things. Who is our repugnant cultural other? Somebody whose skin color is different? Somebody whose culture is so different that it just doesn't make sense to us. Somebody whose fundamental view of the world is so different that we just say, why do you even exist? Who's the person that we look out or the, the person who represents the, uh, uh, the belief or the worldview or the, or the system that we look out and say, 
you are what's wrong with this world. Who's our repugnant cultural other? Who's that, that person we just go to links to avoid? Jacobs points out, of course, obviously, this is a profoundly unhealthy situation. It prevents us from recognizing as neighbors people who may literally be our neighbors right next door to us or on a different floor. He says when we're consumed by the belief that the other, however we define other, is repugnant, we end up as the few, the proud, the more or less constantly appalled at everyone else. Does that sound familiar? I've noticed the more we tend to put ourselves in different groups, different classes, different um, sub-collections of affinity groups, whatever you want to call it, the more we have to define ourselves in opposition to something else. When I say I'm a Mac guy, what that really means is I hate PCs and everyone who uses them. When I say I prefer Star Wars over Star Trek, that means I think Trekkies are dumb. <laughs> there are so many ways for us to differentiate ourselves, you know? Uh, Marvel versus DC, Sega versus Nintendo, Red Sox versus Yankees, Harry Potter versus The Lord of the Rings, boys versus girls, Calvinists versus Arminians, pirates versus ninjas, Pepsi versus Coke, Colts versus Patriots. Anything? <laughs> Nothing? Man, and some of you are nodding along because you're like, I know exactly which side I'm on. <laughs> and others of you, I can see it in your eyes. You're, you're like, oh, man, these people who put themselves on sides think that life is just lining up against other people. I can't stand people like that. I just want to point out you're on the side of all the people who don't like <laughs> taking sides, okay? That's a side. None of us get out of this, all right? We, we, all, we have all defined ourselves by, by something. Here's, here's the trouble. It's great to say, I love this, I love that. I define myself kind of by this tribe that I belong to. But the default way in this fallen world for these tribes to, to strengthen the inward bond of the tribe is, is to focus less and less on what makes us unique and more and more on what makes the other bad. We begin to define ourselves more by what we're against than what we're for. Christianity is not immune as long as we continue to define ourselves or see ourselves in a battle, in a war, in a fight. The more we are going to be tempted to define ourselves not as those born again into a living hope, as Peter does, but define ourselves against those who don't believe that. How ridiculous is it to define ourselves in opposition to the very people we're trying to reach? You know what's distinct about Christianity? We're not you, but you should join us. That's not very appealing. That's not highlighting the attractiveness of the gospel. What Peter does in 1 Peter in this letter is, is fascinating because he doesn't seem all that interested in hurling threats at aggressive non-Christian neighbors. Right, he's talking to people standing up under persecution, and he doesn't say, be ready always to give a defense for the reason why your neighbors are going to hell. Does he? 
He says, be ready always to give a reason for the defense, for the hope that is in you, for who you are in Christ, who Christ is and what he has done through you. One theologian says, look, the whole letter, in the entire letter, Christian hope, not the damnation of non-Christians, figures centrally. Over and over again, Peter instructs these churches, define yourself by who you are, not what you're against. Define yourself by who Jesus is and what he has done for you. Don't define yourself as what as being against others, not even when they're picking off members of your church. What is faith? Faith church. Are we a community that feeds itself on the story of who our God is and what he has called us to do? Or are, are we a community that feeds ourselves on the stories of what church we're not like? Like, yeah, I, I go to faith church. It's pretty cool. It's, it's not like church XYZ. How do we conceive of ourselves as a church? People born again into a new kingdom or people in opposition to the kingdom of the world? What's our primary story? Which one exhibits gentleness and respect? The gentleness and respect that Peter is calling for to these churches is not just a passive kind of kindness. It's very active. Earlier in the letter, actually just a paragraph above these verses that we're looking at this morning, he instructs them like, hey, you're being reviled. You are being persecuted. When that happens, I want you to repay evil with a blessing. Repay evil with a blessing. Those who revile you, bless them. Again, Miroslav Volf, he writes about this passage. He says, when blessing replaces rage and revenge, the one who suffers violence refuses to retaliate in kind and chooses instead to encounter violence with an embrace. He says, but how can people give up violence in the midst of a life-threatening conflict if their identity is wrapped up in rejecting the beliefs and practices of their enemies? Only those who refuse to be defined by their enemies can bless them. Only those who refuse to be defined by their enemies can bless them. In other words, only people who are full of something else have anything to give. We can't bless our enemies if we're just defining ourselves in opposition to the world around us. So what are we? Are we, are we the type of people who can bless our enemies, who are so full of the living hope of Christ that we can we can pray for, we can somehow compassionately love even those who have said the worst things about us, done the worst things to us? Or are we a people who, whose foundation is on something other than Christ, a foundation that is assailable, it can, it can be torn down, and so we have to defend it, we have to be strong, sharp, hard. What are we? The language throughout the letter of sojourners, exiles, pilgrims, it highlights the fact that we will be different. In fact, our difference is crucial. There's no mission. There's no, no one to go to if we're not different from anyone. You have to be different in order to make a difference, right? We're going to be different. What kind of a different do we want to be? Hard, sharp, soft? Obviously, I'm trying to convince you from this letter, and this, this is only two words in the whole letter. It shows up all throughout First Peter that 
He's calling us to a soft difference, a gentle defense, as we titled the sermon. He's calling us not to be hard and sharp, but soft. And and I've quoted uh, Miroslav Volf a couple of times, um, the theologian in this letter, because some of what he's written has, has really influenced my thinking. He's a Croatian theologian, grew up in Croatia as a, what he calls a minority of minorities. He was in a communist state. He was a Protestant, which is a minority. But more than that, he was in the Pentecostal branch, which is a minority of the minority, which was even more considered suspect uh, by the government. He, he grew up, lived, worked in Croatia during uh, the independence movement, the genocides, the battles that came after. So when he talks about responding to violence with an embrace, he's got some credibility. He knows what he's talking about. He's lived it. So he, he reads First Peter and reads a, about a church living as a minority, writes then with his own experience in the background, and he's the one who coined this term, soft difference, or at least coined it for me. He might have gotten it from somewhere else. He's the one who introduced me to it. He says, I think we should call this, what First Peter has in mind here, a soft difference. And he says, I, I don't mean a weak difference. I don't mean weak. For in First Peter, the difference is anything but weak. It is strong, but it is not hard. Fear for oneself and one's identity creates hardness. Because the difference then with, joins itself with hardness. If you're hard different, then everyone around you is a threat. Either be like me or get away from me. Submit or be rejected. He says that's not the way of Christ. A decision for a soft difference, on the other hand, presupposes a fearlessness, which 1 Peter repeatedly encourages his readers to assume. It was right there in verse 14 of chapter 3. He says people who are secure in themselves, or more accurately, secure in their God, are able to live a soft difference without fear. They have no need to subordinate or damn others, but can allow others the space to be themselves. For people who live the soft difference, then, mission fundamentally takes on the forms of witness and invitation. They seek to win without pressure or manipulation or coercion, sometimes even without a word, as Peter says in chapter 3, verse 1. It's a soft difference. The question is, man, can we do that? Can we live differently in this world, not with a hard difference or a sharp difference, but with a soft difference? We're going to be a church that does not compromise our difference. I'm not saying compromise the message. I'm not saying change what we believe so that people aren't as angry at us. I'm saying it doesn't matter. Our foundations of our faith cannot be destroyed. So we can be strong and soft. We can be gentle and unafraid. It's not up to us to defend the foundation of our faith. That's up to Jesus. I was emailing back and forth with a college student who grew up here at Faith. Uh, I was sending some of these ideas to him and asking him for some input. input. What do you think? How, do, how does a college student in a big secular university take some ideas like this? And he responded. He wrote back, and, and this particular student is, is typically uses this uh, emotional language. He says, I'm sobbing. My insides are bleeding in a million places after reading this. I was like, is it that bad? He says, no, how unbelievably attractive the church would be to everyone if the church understood this. He says, soft difference is the yellow brick road right into the hearts of all of our neighbors. 
in this culture, for someone to despise a confident person who lets other, it's impossible for someone in this culture to despise a confident person who lets other people be themselves. He said, my, my friends love people. They take pride in loving people. They want to help people. The gospel's message is literally loving unlovable people. So why aren't the churches busting with young college kids? And I just say, well, maybe we need to learn how to be a soft different. Now, it's all well and good, of course, for us to say as a church, yes, let's do this. Let's do this as a church. And as long as we do it as a church, I'm not responsible because you all are doing it, right? Or you're not responsible because all the rest of us are doing it. So I'm not going to apply this in corporate ways. Let's apply this in individual personal ways. I've got three ideas, three sort of applications maybe you can take home with you as you try to figure out, well, how do I live the soft difference in the world around me? How do I listen to other people and entertain other ideas without my own foundations being destroyed? How, How do I do this? Well, three suggestions. First, Take a look at what influences you. It's almost a trope now to complain about how divisive our political conversations have gotten in this country. And that's not surprising because division, discord, loud shouting at one another, that's how you get, adver- that's how you get eyes and ears, and so that's how you sell advertisements. We can't complain about the state of the conversation in our country and then continue to tune in to the same broadcasts, the same radio shows and TV shows and talks, whatever, that continue to, to act in that way. It, that doesn't make sense. Like, we're, we're feeding it, right? What kind of a conversation, a soft difference, a hard difference, real stringent, sharp, what kind of a conversation do you most often tune into? What's influencing you? Because The more you listen to how people interact with one another, just the more natural it is to interact that way. So are you seeking out the people who exhibit calm, thoughtful, reasoned engagement? And chances are, this is obvious, I know, but chances are that is not going to happen in 144 characters or even 288 or however many you get now. So... It takes time and investment to find people who are going to engage intelligently and, and civilly with one another. But we've got to put in the time. We've got to put in the investment individually if we want to see our culture as a whole learn how to talk to itself again. So seek out, here's my suggestion, seek out and find the best and fairest minded people who disagree with you, who see the world fundamentally different than you do, and listen to them. Like, actually listen, not just listen so that you can respond, but listen and, and think about what they have to say. That was suggestion number one. Suggestion number two, beyond the conversations and the interactions you hear, what's the general tenor of the ones that you're part of? If an unbiased observer were to listen into a conversation or maybe read the conversations on your Facebook wall, Would they walk away saying, wow, this person is so gentle and obviously contains so much respect for the people they're interacting with? Or just hashtag it flame war and move on. What characterizes your own interactions? This kind of hits home for me because if I'm not careful, I'm the type of person who will stay up late sitting at my computer because someone on the internet is wrong. 
Some of you think that's funny. Others of you are like, oh, man, that's me. Hey, if that's you, here's my suggestion. Take your conversations offline. Like, seriously, just don't have a conversation online. Have it, in, have it face-to-face. It's a lot harder to troll someone when they're across the table from you, right? If you cannot find ideological common ground or theological common ground or political common ground, then find literal common ground. Get on the same patch of dirt or the same floor or in the same room and just talk face to face. I guarantee it will help your interaction. If you can't get offline, then wait five minutes before you say anything. Like anytime you see something, wait five minutes, then respond. The guy I quoted earlier who wrote the book, How to Think, he says, you know, our, our social media uh, dialogue would be so much healthier if after you saw something, there was a little timer that counted down and you couldn't respond for 30 minutes. Because in those 30 minutes, you'd get up, you'd walk around, you'd do some chores, maybe chop some vegetables, make a peanut butter sandwich, and you would have forgotten already by the time you got back or come back and maybe be able to ask yourself, does this really matter? So the next time your hands are shaking too much, to type what you want to say, just take five minutes, all right? It'll help us practice the soft difference. Third, finally, look at your motivation. First was think about the, in, the, the tenor of the conversations that influence you. Second was think about what characterizes your conversations and maybe work in some breaks, give it a pause, get offline and in real life face-to-face with someone. Third is, think about the motivations for why you engage the way you engage. Right? Some of us are self-appointed truth police and have the, the spiritual gift of telling other people when they're wrong. And, and we're good at it, you know, and, and God is blessing and we're feeling really called to it. Eh, that's, not, that's not really a spiritual gift. Why do we jump in? Why do we jump in and start engaging and feeling like we need to correct people? Why, why, why do we feel like, you know, I just can't even have people over that, that believe other things because I'm going to fight with them? Why? What are we afraid of? What's being destroyed out from underneath us that we need to defend? Chances are, the deeper you look, the more you'll just see yourself. It's a fascinating passage in 1 Peter chapter 2. See, Peter doesn't just tell us to do these things and then leave us to try to figure out how. He actually gives us some example and some motivation and kind of a path forward of how we do this. Uh, in chapter 2, verse 20, 21, he's talking about submitting to unjust authority. And he says, uh, he's writing specifically to slaves. He says, you've been called to this submission because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. But when he was reviled, he did not revile in, ter- in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. But here's the key. He continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. What's the foundation for your faith? If it's your own intelligence, you can't not argue with somebody smarter than you. If it's your own sort of emotional sense of having grabbed a hold of faith, then you're going to have to uh, consistently sort of outdo yourself or outprove other people in, in the sincerity of your emotions and the depth of your feeling for God, for Jesus. If it's your own 
morality, your own righteousness, you'll have to continue to point out and remind yourself of all the ways you're being good and therefore God must accept you. That's the foundation. Any of those things can be attacked, can be assailed, can, can be confronted from outside. What cannot be assailed is the one who judges justly. Peter goes on to say about Jesus, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. And in chapter 3, verse 18, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. He keeps talking about this, this exchange that has happened in us when we are in Christ, that has happened to us because of Christ. The one who judges justly should have judged Jesus as righteous and us as condemned, but Jesus stood in our place, was judged as condemned so we can be judged righteous. That is the foundation of our faith. It has nothing to do with us and everything to do with him. And since it's not on us, it's not our responsibility, it's totally in him, it can never be assailed. It can never be destroyed. We don't have to be hard and, and antagonistically defensive. We can be soft. We can be strong. We can be different. We're not going to find for ourselves the resources to live out this kind of soft difference that Peter envisions, gentleness and respect until we can first find ourselves securely in God. As, as long as our foundation is in ourself, it can be attacked. Until it's placed in God, we will have to be defensive. Once it is, once we no longer need to define ourselves in opposition to others or to defeat others in arguments to hide the fact that we're insecure, uncertain about what we believe, or afraid, only once we could do that can we actually be soft. So can we do that? Can Faith Church be a people of God, a royal priesthood, a holy nation that defines itself by being born again into a living hope, a future rule and reign of God that's coming in glimpses now? Or do we have to continue to define ourselves as against everything outside these walls in order to feel secure? Can we be different and yet, soft? I think we have to be. Father, you have given us an impossible command to respond to those who condemn us, say hateful things, persecute us, or even just don't understand us. You've called us to respond with a blessing. You've called us to respond with gentleness and respect. to see through the, the insults and the imprecations and to see to the heart, the humanity of the person with whom we are interacting through a screen right in front of us, through a letter, whatever. You've called us to gentleness. You've called us to softness. Not weakness. Lord, give us what we need in, in worship, in prayer, and in the reading of your word to become a people who follow in the footsteps of our crucified Messiah. Different, loving, gentle, soft.
In his name we pray. Amen.